Thank you, church. I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, continuing our study of uh, this amazing book, incredibly relevant in our culture for such a time as this, just in our lives in general. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 25 here in just a moment, but before I do, I want to bring to your attention, um, you may have seen videos on the internet about this. If not, I would encourage you to go look one up. They are just highly amusing. But there's these videos where people sit a child at a table, and they put a camera up, their phone or a camera, and then they put like a marshmallow or a cookie in front of them. And they say, now look, you can have this one marshmallow now, or if you can wait five minutes, you get two marshmallows. But if you touch this marshmallow before five minutes is up, that's the only one you get. And then they just leave the room, and they have this camera going, and they record what the child's doing as they're sitting and waiting for this marshmallow. And you have some children that they're, as soon as they're like, here's one. Now you can have this now, or you can wait. Bop. Put it in. They're done. They've already eaten it. Then you got some children. The parent walks out, and you see this moral dilemma for this child, like, And so they'll like pick it up and look at it, put it down, and they're waiting. <laughs> they're like waiting for the parents to come back in, kind of touch it with their tongue, put it back down. You know, you see the struggle, and they, they really want that second marshmallow. But man, I can have the first one now, right? The idea, what makes this so entertaining is we see the children struggling through this idea that here's something great that I can enjoy right now. It doesn't matter that I could wait five minutes and have two. I can enjoy myself right now with just this one. It doesn't matter that two might be better. I could have this now. In our culture, we have this instant gratification all around us. If I need something, Amazon Prime, it's here in two days, sometimes one. If I want a meal, I don't have to cook it. I'll just go and get fast food. We have almost anything we want right at our fingertips. The main idea this morning that this kind of relates to we must not let what is good keep us from what is great. That's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. We must not let what is good keep us from what is great. So as we finish up chapter 7 here, we are finishing up the fifth topic of about 10 in this letter from Paul, talking about marriage. We've looked at holiness in marriage. We've looked at the gift of singleness in marriage. We've looked at the call to be faithful in our marriages whether we're married to a believer or not, and then we've extended that call to every sphere of our lives. Well, this morning as we finish up chapter 7, Paul does something similar, where he gives an example, some wise advice to couples that are engaged to be married, but then that wise advice kind of shapes every sphere of our lives. So if you are physically able, I'm going to invite you to stand with us for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to start in 25, and we'll read down through verse 40. Here's what God's Word says. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired every word of the Scriptures, we ask that you would open them and illuminate your word in our hearts this morning, that we might receive it as it is, the Word of God, that it might transform us further into your image and restore us back to that original image that you designed us to have in the beginning. Lord, we ask that you would bring all this about because of the work of Jesus Christ and through his work as we read from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So as we start our passage here, verses 25 through 28, the word betrothed in the ESV translates to a word that is, it's often translated virgin in many translations. Your translation may say that. I think that that translation is fine. Both are technically correct. But the idea here, given the context, is that Paul now turns to address those who were engaged in marriage. To refer to her as a virgin might imply that maybe she's not married. It's just a young woman who has not been married yet. But the idea is that she is committed to be married, but has not officially been married yet. They're not quite single, and they're not quite married. Paul addressed both of those groups. Well, now what about people who are kind of in this waiting period? What do they do? Well, Paul here gives his opinion similar to last time, only now he genuinely gives his opinion the weight of wise advice rather than command. If you remember last week, he gave his opinion concerning marriage and divorce from unbelievers. He said, I say not the Lord, but he used this forceful language. He should not or she should not. So in that instance, Paul's opinion was really a command. But now we see something a little bit different. And there's a couple of clues here if you want to look, look along with me. 
It says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. And then he says in verse 26, I think in view of the present distress. And then if you look further down in verse 28, he says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. So Paul here is simply giving wise advice. It's okay if you disagree with his advice and act in another way. That's up to you to decide to do. But he believes that acting in this way is going to be wise, but he doesn't want them to feel as though they are morally bound to follow his advice. And his advice is given because there's some type of present distress. The text doesn't tell us what it is. Some scholars say that it's just talking about the Christian life. So the present distress started whenever Christ ascended into heaven, and now we are without our Savior, and it will go all the way through the church age until we are to be with the Lord forever. That's the present distress. I'm not inclined to think that that's what he's talking about here, because if that's true, it's hard to explain why Paul would not have included this group of engaged individuals back in verse 8 when he's talking to the unmarried and the widows. He doesn't include that group there, that it's good to be single. So I don't think that this is just a general principle across all of time. I think there's a very specific distress some scholars say that it could be related to persecution. There are some that have pointed out that around the time this was written, there was a very severe famine. And so it could be that they know this is coming, and this is the distress. Whatever it is, there's a hardship that leads Paul to suggest that they ought to wait before getting married if they're engaged. In view of this distress, it is good for you to remain as you are. Now, to avoid confusion, he clarifies in verse 27, in view of this present distress. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So again, if you do, it's not sin. It's purely a practical consideration in light of whatever this distress is. And this brings out something important for us this morning. Sometimes in the Christian life, decisions are not sin issues as much as they are wisdom issues. There can be something that is not good for us to do, not because it's sinful, but just because it may not be wise or helpful. A decision sometimes can be allowed, it's not sinful, but still be unwise. Paul already made this point somewhat back in chapter 6 verse 12. Sometimes the right question to ask isn't, is it sinful? Am I allowed to do it? But is it helpful? Is it going to be beneficial? Here, Paul is suggesting that it may not be helpful, it's allowable, but it may not be helpful for those who are engaged to be married in view of some present distress. If the distress is something like famine, this would make a lot of sense. There are certain worldly troubles, if you see in verse 28, that phrase, that might affect families more harshly than it might affect individuals. Me and Stacy have often talked about, with both of our kids, I think, before they were born, the world that they are coming into. And this is good, and this is a pleasing thing to have children, but as we think about the world around us and what they're going to have to endure as they grow up, sometimes it can be disheartening to think about. 
uh, definitely understand the idea of worldly troubles here. Now, this is obviously pretty vague. So Paul, anticipating potential confusion, clarifies in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then he gives five as though statements in the following verses. Five times he says as though. I'm going to read this list again in verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's the first. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And then on the back end of this collection of as those, we see the similar idea. For the present form of this world is passing away. So there's a common thread tying all of these things together. And it's before, two, before and after two statements that talk about the temporary nature of things in the world. The common thread tying these things together is attachment to the things of this world. Now, typically in the Bible, when you see things of this world, it's a negative connotation. It's talking about fleshly desires, things that we ought not to do, sinful actions or thoughts. Those are the things of the world, or talking about the flesh. But that's not what he's necessarily talking about here. In this list, we see things that are good or things that are kind of neutral, depending on what you're doing. Those who have wives, well, that's a good thing. Mourning over loss, that's a good thing. Rejoicing, that's a good thing. So here it's not a sin issue. Paul already clarified that. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. It's a wisdom issue. It's a practical issue. The problem isn't that they're bad, but that they're temporary. He says the appointed time, here, let me explain. This is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. And then at the end, in verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. It's all temporary. The more temporary something is, the less attached to it we ought to be. That's the point that he's making. Though this seems like common sense, we often fail living this way because we put our considerations backwards. How do we do this? Many times, and I'm speaking from experience, we put pleasure before priority in our considerations. The first thing we ask is, what do I want? And then only after we answer that question, do we ask the question, well, what should I do? Or what is important? Or what do I need? And so even before we've considered how helpful or temporary or not or beneficial or necessary something might be, we become attached to it first. And then it becomes much harder to detach later when it's time to reprioritize. I think about these families along the side of the road. Stacy will point out every now and then, oh, look, they're giving away puppies. It's a trap. Okay, it's a trap. You're going to pull in, you pick up the puppy, and then attachment sets in. You may not need a puppy. It may be extremely unbeneficial for you to have a puppy, but once the puppy is in your hands, the attachment's made. 
you're, you're going home with a puppy, <laughs> whether you want it or not. So we see the puppies on the side of the road, and we just put up blinders, like, don't look, mm, speed off. We don't want the attachment because we know, priority-wise, that may not be the most helpful. Or it may just be the excuse that I give so we don't have to come home with a puppy. I don't know. The point is that we reverse this by putting our pleasure before what should be prioritized. It becomes more difficult to detach. And do you know what this creates? Verse 32 tells us, I want you to be free from anxieties. When we put that pleasure before priority, suddenly my attention starts to divide. It's like the guy that has all the sticks and he's spinning the plates and you've got to keep all the plates spinning and the more plates you add, the more you've got to keep track of and eventually you're just going to stress yourself out over trying to keep everything in its proper balance. It creates anxiety. There are a few words that repeat in verses 32 through 35 as we continue to move forward. I'm going to read it again and pay attention to what words are repeating. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Did you catch the repeated words here? Anxious, anxious, please, please, divide, undivided. The anxiety here is directly tied to our devotion. What we are most devoted to is what we are going to be most anxious about. And we can tell what we are devoted to, one, by what most pleases us, and two, what we attempt to please the most. If you look at this passage here, the married man is anxious about worldly things. How do you know? Because he's focused on how to please his wife. That is what he is devoted to. You can tell because that's what he is pleasing. And it works the other way around also. We've seen already what pleases us. What are my desires? So when our devotion divides, it creates anxiety. And Paul makes his point by giving the example in marriage. He just said, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Well, now he explains what that means. He doesn't mean get divorced. We've already talked about that. Rather, it's a call to appropriate devotion. The one who is unmarried is anxious about pleasing God, holiness, purity. But the one who is married is anxious about worldly things, how to please a spouse. We see it in verses 33 and 34. The problem is that the married person has divided interests. Look at verse 34. His interests are divided. And because the married person has divided interests, there's going to be conflicts of interest, creating what? Anxiety. 
This is the reason that Paul gives these five as those. This is why Paul encourages them to live as though they did not have a spouse, as though they were not mourning. He recognizes that the way for them to be freed from anxiety in the present distress is to help them prioritize their lives spiritually. He says that down here in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is what he means when he says he wants to promote good order and to secure undivided devotion. The word is priority. Priority is simply good order that secures proper devotion. I know what I want to be devoted to, so I create order in my life to help direct my devotion where it ought to be. I prioritize. The things that most directly apply to what I want to focus on, I make first in my life, and everything else gets moved further down the rung. Are you married? Live in that marriage in such a way that your devotion to God is not affected. That's what Paul is getting at. He doesn't say, even though he's not saying, even though you're married, just act like you don't have a wife at all. We've already addressed that last time. He's called us to be faithful in our engagements. What he's saying is, as far as your priorities are concerned, make sure that your commitment to your spouse or to whatever else is not interfering with your focus and devotion to the Lord. Paul wants them to prioritize eternal pursuits over earthly pleasures. This is what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. I'm going to read through it for us real quick. You could turn there if you like. We won't be there long. Luke 12, 13 through 21. If you want to mark it to read later, that's acceptable. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Listen to this parable, the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you know what Jesus said right after this parable, talking about priorities? Verse 22, very next thing he says, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It's not a coincidence that these are related, both here and in Paul's teaching. We are to seek God's kingdom first. Not being anxious about these things that are good things sometimes, but they're not the ultimate 
thing. Well, what are some pleasures that we put before our spiritual pursuits? Entertainment, comfort, public image, reputation, sometimes just laziness, family, work. Many of these things are not bad in and of themselves. Again, don't always ask, is it sinful? Ask, is it helpful? Is this helping me to be more devoted to the Lord, or is it dividing my interests away from the Lord? Is it helping me to be obedient? Is it distracting me from obedience? What's really scary in this is that for some, it isn't so much that our attention is divided. It's not. It's that it's almost entirely on the wrong thing. We have little to no spiritual attention. No prayer. No reading the scriptures. No reading spiritual books. No listening to spiritual music. No spiritual podcasts. No witnessing to friends or family. No spiritual conversations at home. No spiritual conversations at work. No scripture memory. No fasting. No discipleship through Sunday school or small groups. No reaching out to other believers during the week. The extent of our spiritual attention many times is just church. I'm devoted to the Lord. I came to church. We have two to three hours maybe on a Sunday, possibly even one to two hours on a Wednesday, if that. If this is you this morning, I don't say this for our shame, but for our benefit. It is to help us all be more devoted to the Lord. We need brothers and sisters to come along beside us and ask how we're doing. I'll never forget one of my good friends, Parker Goforth, was working with him at Cypress Baptist Church, and he came up to me one day in my office, and he said, we were talking about something, and he said, hey, what did you read today? And I said, what? He said, like, in your, in your Bible, what are you reading right now? And I was instant. he doesn't know this to this day, I was instantly hit with conviction. I had not read my Bible that morning, devotionally. I read it in preparation for church. I, I read it for work. Like right now, when I read this passage, I read it frequently for work, but have I read it devotionally? And it hit me like a weight of bricks. And you know what the first thing I felt was? Anger. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how sin works? Why is he putting me on the spot like this? What? What? I don't want to be honest. <gasps> right? but isn't that what we need? Don't we need people? And he wasn't condemning. He wanted to sharpen me. This is what we all need. In thinking about these things, some of us might think, well, I just don't have the time for those things. And I'm going to use Paul's words here in verses 29 through 31. Live as though you do have the time. Live as though you do have the time. I don't have the time. I don't care. Live as though you do. Make an adjustment. What's taking up your time? Live as though that did not exist in your life. And then suddenly you'll have the time because you had time for that before. And more times than not, here's what you're going to find. By putting the priority first you will miraculously make time for what you almost sacrificed. I just don't have time. 
Okay, we'll find something you do that day and get rid of it and put it there. And when you do that and you live as though that didn't exist and then you spend time in the Word or whatever it is, in prayer, and you get done, you'll find some time later that day to fit in what you almost sacrificed because you don't want to sacrifice it. Suddenly, it's like you've multiplied time. You started with 24 hours. It was full. You made room, put something in. You get everything done. And at the end of the day, guess how much time you still used? 24 hours. It's a miracle. <laughs> how does that happen? But it does. It's called reprioritizing. I will never forget the advice of, and I don't even remember where I heard this. I think it was on a podcast, maybe. John Piper gave advice. He said, if I could go back and tell my 20-year-old self, I think it was six things to do for my entire life, one of the things was to spend time in the Word daily. He says, if you get to lunchtime and you realize I haven't read the Bible yet, skip lunch. It's not as important. If you get to dinner time and I haven't read the Bible today, skip it. It's just food. In my flesh, I think, just food. I need food. But I get his point. Live as though you have the time. If you're still not convinced, I'm going to give you a convicting challenge that I've done multiple times, and I'm convicted every time. You can pull out this device. You can go to the settings app, I believe is where it is. I can't tell you what category it's under. But it will log how much time you spend on this on each individual app on your phone. Only do this if you want conviction. If you don't, ignore it like I tend to do. We have the time. Do we have the priority? So getting back on track, in light of the present distress, Paul applies this principle to those who are engaged to be married. If you're engaged, it might be wise for you to hold off. It'll protect you from unnecessary anxiety that might distract you from the Lord. That's his argument up to this point. So then verse 36 if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So he says, everything being said so far, if your conscience is pricking you, don't hold off getting married. Don't let this be a restraint for you. Go ahead. It, to get married is to do well. But in light of the present distress, I think to refrain is to do even better. We would do well to incorporate this type of vocabulary in our speech and in our thinking. Not just, am I allowed, am I not allowed, but okay, what's really going to be the most helpful thing for me here? So then he continues on in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but her husband if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So this marks the end of Paul's comments on marriage. And his final remarks here have to do with remarriage. If a spouse dies, the other spouse is free to remarry. But Paul gives a qualification, and then he gives one more suggestion. The qualification is in verse 39, only in the Lord. If you get remarried, it should be to a believer. This is true of all marriages, by the way, not just remarriages. Christians ought to marry Christians. That doesn't mean that if you're married to a non-Christian that you are somehow living in a perpetual state of sinfulness. That's not what this is saying. 
Why is it that Christians should marry Christians? Because in light of everything we've just looked at, marriage to a Christian will draw you both closer to the Lord, or it ought to. Marriage to a non-Christian will divide your interests, and it's not helpful. That's the whole point. I believe that Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians to not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever also applies here. Now again, could this work? Sure. Does it work? All the time. Is it the most helpful? Not necessarily. So that's the qualification. She is free to be remarried. Marry in the Lord. But then Paul gives a suggestion here. In my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So this final tag, I think I too have the Spirit of God, is probably in response to something the Corinthians wrote in their original letter. Paul, we think this, and we have God's Spirit, so we think this is what we ought to do. It could be that he's addressing that. It's hard to say for sure. Either way, you get Paul's point. He believes widows will be happier to remain single. And again, this isn't a matter of sinful or not sinful, but helpful. If you're a widow and you get married, you have not sinned. This is all a matter of wisdom and practicality. It's not a universal rule. It's more like a proverb that will generally hold true, though there may be exceptions. So the overarching theme of this entire passage, from 25 all the way to 40, though it's applied specifically to marriage, the theme of the passage is priority and focus. Prolonged engagement, marriage versus singleness, remarriage, in every instance, Paul's desire is undivided devotion to the Lord. That happens through proper focus, which is maintained through proper priority. So in light of that, here's some short application for us this morning. Number one, shift your focus to the Lord. Shift your focus to the Lord. If you want a spiritual focus, shift it to the Lord. There's a setting on most of our cameras on our phones. If you have like a, a legit camera, you'll probably have this on there. I'm not an expert on photography, but I believe that the term or the setting is called depth of field. And basically what this does is it gives the appearance that your surroundings are actually deeper or not as deep as they appear to be. So what this means is that whatever you're looking at through the camera lens is in focus and everything else in the background is blurred. So you have what you're focused on and everything else is blurred. Well, if you keep the camera lens focused just right and adjust the depth of field, you can make it so that the things in the foreground are actually blurred and something in the background is in focus. It's a really neat effect that you can play with. I think you can do that on your phone, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if it's called depth of field there, but if you want to see what I'm talking about, get your phone later, sit down in your chair, have something up close like this, and then have something far off, and pull up your camera app. And click on the screen on what's right in front of you, and you'll see everything kind of blur and unblur real quick, and then whatever you touched is in focus. And then everything else is blurred. Well, then click something in the background, your television, your picture on the wall. The television will become blurred, everything else, and then it will focus on whatever you clicked on. This is how our focus is with the Lord. When our focus is solely on what's right in front of our faces, 
and the Lord is in the background, he is simply a blur. We lose any distinction. We're so focused, and I can tell you exactly what this looks like, not so much what he looks like or desires. Our ability to distinguish his will, our ability to discern moral action, our sensitivity to his leading, it all becomes hazy because we have unfocused from him in order to focus on something else. In order to get that back, we need to unfocus on what's in front of us so that we might direct our focus to the Lord. That doesn't mean that we completely drop all of our other responsibilities and relationships. Rather, it means that all these other things become secondary to the Lord. He is what I'm choosing to focus on, and I do that by unfocusing on everything else. Whatever has your focus, you may need to push that into the background so that you are able to unfocus from it so that you can direct your gaze back to the Lord. It isn't good enough just to have God somewhere in the frame on your phone in your picture. Well, I see him. He's back there in the background. I just have this at the foreground. That's not enough. This means that we must be willing for other things in our lives to blend into the background. Well, how do we do this? This leads to, the number, to number two. Prioritize towards the Lord. So shift your focus to the Lord. Do this by prioritizing towards the Lord. To go back to the camera app analogy, whenever you pull out your camera, whatever is centered in the shot is typically what will be auto-focused on. So Gabriel likes to do chess videos on my phone. He has the chess board on the table. Well, he likes to give commentary on chess games that he plays between him and an imaginary person. Turns out when he does that, he's very good at chess. He wins every time that way. So he's like, then this person does this, and this person, and he will do the whole thing. Well, whenever he pulls that camera out, if you go back and watch the videos, whatever moves to the center of the frame on the camera, everything else shifts out, and that shifts into focus every time. The camera knows whatever's in the center is what the object of the, is the object of attention. That's what I need to focus on. This is Paul's whole point with marriage in verses 32 through 35. The married person has structured his or her life around his spouse. The spouse is at the middle. Everything else is around the edges. So what do you think the focus is on? The spouse. Now, that's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing because our marriages are not the ultimate thing. God is. Our marriages exist to serve God, not the other way around. And it's the same with everything in our lives. Anything can take that central focus. And this is what Jesus is getting at. I'm going to read this as well. This is in Matthew 10, 37 through 38. Luke also gives an account of this, I think in uh, Luke 12, possibly. You can go and verify that for sure later. Um, the wording is slightly different, but it's helpful in both instances. Matthew 10, 37 through 38. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Our love for the Lord trumps our love 
for any and everything else. This is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It's to live a life of sacrifice where he becomes my priority. I sacrifice other things that I can live for him. If you want to know what it is that you truly love, take a look at your priorities. What are things that you really just don't want to sacrifice? Are you, what are the things that you are living to please? Borrowing from Paul's analogy, are you living to please your spouse? Maybe your kids or your boss? Are you focusing all your attention on hobbies or leisure activities? That will determine where your priorities are. Here's the third and final. Aim for helpful, not just moral. Aim for helpful, not just moral. Something doesn't have to be sinful to be a distraction. I know that, especially kind of in our westernized context, what we really want at the end of the day is a list of do's and don'ts. I just want to be told what to do and what not to do. That's not necessarily what God wants for us. He doesn't want to do all of our thinking for us. He wants us to think, otherwise he wouldn't, given us, he wouldn't have given us a brain. What he wants to do is fix the way that we think about things. The fall has corrupted our ability to reason properly, and God is reorienting the way that we think. Even if something is sinful, it still may not be helpful. So a list of do's and don'ts, sin and not sin, isn't always the best thing for us. Now, some things may not be the most helpful, but it's unfortunately necessary. Paul gives two examples of marriage. If you're engaged and burning with passion, get married. Do it. If your conscience is convinced that you're not behaving properly towards your fiancé, get married. It isn't wrong, it's good, and it's going to keep you from sin, so go ahead and do it. The point isn't to make a list of do's and don'ts. That's what we want, but that's not what we need. God wants us to learn to think much more critically about everything that we do. That's the point of this. Have we set up our lives in such a way that God will easily remain our focus because of how we've organized our priorities? Church, may we willingly sacrifice temporary things that shift our focus away from the Lord and His eternal purposes so that we might have undivided devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you are a merciful, forgiving God. Though we stray from you, though we are prone to wonder, Lord, you show yourself faithful time and time again. You hold us fast in our faith that we might remain to the end. As we think about your word this morning, Lord, we call upon you for that strength that we need to reprioritize and to refocus our lives. Removing some things that are taking up a lot of space in the frame of our life. Pushing it to the background so that it becomes smaller, that we might bring you to the foreground. Lord, that's our desire, but we need help and strength to bring it about.
strengthen our resolve, strengthen our boldness and willingness to sacrifice. Lord, we desire to please you in all things. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.